We have a completely independent market from whatever is going on in your local area. I think it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of game theory and testing out ideas, but it's going to change power markets as we know them. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. What is up, folks, and welcome back into this week's installment of Blue Collar Bitcoin. Josh and myself, Dan, were delighted to be joined this week by a humble and insanely intelligent gentleman from the Great White North, Mr. Ryan McLeod. On Twitter, you may know him as Nuclear Bitcoiner. Ryan is a laboratory technologist at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. He works in the nuclear lab by day and ducks S9 Bitcoin miners into his dryer at home by night. A true hard-nosed, blue-blooded pleb. In the first half of this discussion, we explore many fascinating facets regarding nuclear energy and its implications. Then in the second half, we dive into how Bitcoin may step in as a catalyst for nuclear energy in the decades moving forward. Ryan spearheaded a team that put together a paper regarding Bitcoin mining with small modular nuclear reactors, something that got enough attention to where they recently presented this paper at an international nuclear conference in Japan. The paper is linked down in the show notes on our website if you'd like to take a peek at this thesis. The longer Josh and I are in this space, the more our minds are blown and stretched by the number of diverse areas this seemingly simple protocol touches. In particular, the implications of Bitcoin on energy production seem to be escalating rather quickly. A reminder, ladies and gents, that if you haven't gotten them yet, get your Bitcoin 2023 tickets. Josh and I will both be in Miami Beach for the conference May 18th to the 20th, 2023. We can attest this event is next level. The education and access are off the charts, but the networking and fellowship with kindred spirits is what makes this event really special. You can support our show and get 10% off tickets with code BCB23. That's code BCB23. Folks, CoinKite makes so much cool shit, it's hard for us to even know what to talk about each week. Today, we'll zero in on the block clock. The block clock is that cool-looking thing sitting in the officer background of what seems to be every serious Bitcoiner on the planet. Both the Block Clock Mini and the Block Clock Micro look even cooler in person than you're expecting. You can easily program these beauties to display a plethora of cool-as-hell Bitcoin metrics, from price to block height to the next halving date and way more. The Block Clocks are devices made for Bitcoin nerds, but the CoinKite team has ensured they are aesthetically pleasing enough to the point where your wife or husband might even allow it in your living room. You can support our show and pick up a Block Clock Mini or Block Clock Micro by going to our CoinKite affiliate link down in the show notes. And if you're looking to pick up a cold card, use promo code BCB for 5% off. That's code BCB. Okay, enjoy this show with Nuclear Bitcoiner. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Ryan, welcome on Blue Collar Bitcoin, my friend. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed your show quite a bit. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're hoping maybe you can shed some light on this Invisible boogeyman that is nuclear nuclear energy. And I'm going to mispronounce nuclear nuclear like a hundred times during this because for some reason today I can't say 
the word. So just forgive me throughout this. You've been drinking, dude? What do you got? Uh, no, show us, I don't uh, know what's going okay. on, man. I just, uh, I think maybe I need to get the, the frenulum snipped on my tongue today or something. You know, it's just a little slagging. I'm actually going to. I'm going to crack a beer here, gentlemen. I've uh, drifted away from doing this during the show because I have a propensity to sound like more and more of a clown the more beers I drink, but we may regress tonight. Um, You know, one thought I had, Josh, moving into this episode and reading your essay, Small Modular Reactors and Proof of Work Digital Asset Mining and Bitcoin, is that his job as a nuclear scientist might just be slightly more complex than what we do for a living, Josh. Hmm. It's hard to say, though. I don't know. It's far-fetched, but I mean, I, I could see a world where that could be possible. Maybe. <laughs> I, yeah, we're pumped to talk to you, man. I mean, you've got an expertise that uh, we don't get around much, so we're going we're gonna to ask a lot of questions tonight, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. No, I'm up for it, but yeah, I must stress, though, I'm certainly not an expert. Like, my deep nuclear research is, is more as a hobbyist. Like, I work in the industry as a laboratory technologist. So I do lab analysis that supports a lot of the, the research and safety and and just ongoing maintenance of the Canadian nuclear fleet. But yeah, I, I have learned a lot from being around the nuclear scientists and the engineers and I have I have them accessible for asking whatever questions I might have and and I've done the history and know know it fairly well, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a long ways away from a nuclear engineer well i think it's safe to say you're a lot closer to a nuclear scientist than dan or myself so uh, we'll take your word for whatever you're going to say here i think dan and i you know we're pretty close to doctors we come in pretty close contact with them on a daily basis you know driving people to the hospital so it's fair it's a safe assumption to say we're as close to doctors as as you are to a nuclear scientist then roughly (laughs) (laughs) it's the proximity effect I support their work, yeah. What what I do supports their ability to do what they need to do. It's a small cog in a very, very large industry. A true pleb, Josh. Yeah, we love the humility. Pleb mindset. I was just in the right place at the right time when I started to catch on to Bitcoin. And then I, I, I read all the news that my company's getting into small modular reactors. And then you start learning about Bitcoin mining and its relationship to energy and how they're using it on stranded energy assets like the flared gas or trying to use methane off of the landfills and waste sources such as that and i figured it that it was uh yes small modular reactors of bitcoin mining just kind of made sense so is that how you kind of get introduced to the idea of bitcoin is it through your job through the uh, energy sector where people were talking about it there or did you take it from the outside and bring the idea around no i had like everybody been exposed to bitcoin sometime long in the past like i was supported like ron paul in like the uh, pay attention to the fed kind of stuff and every once in a while max kaiser would come up in some of the content i was consuming and then i moved on with my life and family and work and several jobs in the interim and then i had cashed out from an online poker site uh, and they offered bitcoin cash out so i just i spun up a wallet cashed out to it and then just left it and ignored it for three years. This would have been like 17, 18 and just, and then the big run up in uh, January of 21, then I was like, oh, this few hundred dollars is now worth a few thousand dollars. So I started to actually take it seriously. And I jumped right off the deep end going into Max's podcast. And then that quickly led me to like safety and sailor, breed love and Vallis, And yeah, the, my whole podcast list just went orange as, as many do when you get obsessed with this technology. 
And then at one point, my wife and I were talking when uh, when Elon was footing the energy use after that uh, had this spring crash. Uh, she threw out the idea of mining with small modular reactors because yeah, she works for the company as well. And then I just kind of ran with that idea and started uh, just cold messaging people I was hearing on podcasts. And then eventually, uh, Greg Foss was the first one that kind of picked up, and he was like, "Yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Tell me more." And here's someone else that was was working with it. So then that connected me with some other people. And then as you start venturing down the rabbit hole, you start to find out that you are not alone and then eventually you get on Twitter and then the whole world opens up to you and Bitcoin Twitter just find all kinds of new internet friends and a warm embrace of Bitcoin Twitter yeah then this competition came up it was the that's what the uh, the paper that I had sent you guys for the basically mining Bitcoin with small modular the reactors this North American young generation in nuclear was hosting this contest called innovation for nuclear and they were looking for ideas to use nuclear power to apply to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, just like ending poverty, uh, better health care, better infrastructure. Like the goals on their face value are reasonable. Like it's questionable how certain international institutions are pursuing those goals and all. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of Bitcoiners are not a big fan of the UN and the way they pursue their their ends. But uh, I figured I would give it a shot, and I. Put, the, put a team together and put this idea out there and we won this contest and got to present at an international nuclear conference in Japan just a few months ago and and that was a week after adopting Bitcoin where I just randomly asked if I could present and they accepted my application and took my wife to El Salvador for a vacation and did a little present presentation at the Bitcoin conference on the side. It was awesome. Very cool. What was the reaction at the nuclear event? What kind of people came up to you afterward? What kind of pushback did you get? Was anybody truly enamored by it and potentially going to take action? Yeah, for the most part, they were very much intrigued by the idea. And considering this was like weeks after the FTX imploded, um, I was expecting a little bit more dismissiveness from the audience at the nuclear conference. But surprisingly, they were very much into it. Like once... Once you kind of get the idea a little bit fleshed out and explain to them just how it's like in applying Bitcoin mining to deploying remote nuclear reactors or just the existing fleet, it's just basically insurance on surplus generation. You you just always have that, that customer at the edge to take up whatever you've got extra. So I think let's take a step back here and start kind of from the beginning. I think there's a propensity for a lot of people to get immediately scared when they hear the words nuclear energy. They think of Chernobyl, they think of Fukushima, maybe they think of Three Mile Island, some of the circumstances that turned out kind of negative for the industry besides Three Mile Island. I think that worked out just fine. They contained it. But let's talk about some true basics of nuclear energy, how it works, and explain why it isn't the boogeyman that so many people think it is. Well, nuclear power is, it's it's been a very important part of our energy systems for the last 60, 70 years. It's a very controlled reaction that controls the process of fission in a, in a harnessed way that, that allows us to convert the, the energy from the nuclear fission process in, into steam that can then be converted into electricity by running it through a turbine. It, it's basically just engineering and each iteration of generations of reactors have improved significantly on like different safety protocols and means to ensure that no incidents like Fukushima or Chernobyl could happen again. Like 
Chernobyl, I'm sure as many people have watched the movie, a lot of, a lot of that was related to poor communication between management and operations and that they were kind of pushing this, this old reactor design beyond its original design limits. And you take risks like that, bad things can happen. And then Fukushima was a learning lesson that, uh, you have to make sure that you have backup power. If you lose your diesel backup power and you lose cooling to your reactor, bad things will happen. So now the, the Japanese are building fortresses around their reactors with 20 meter tall, three meter thick concrete walls that will protect them from even the largest of tsunamis that mother nature can throw at them. And then on top of that, to secure their, their, their generators, they're basically putting them on, on floating reservoirs so that the water will fill up beneath them and the diesel generator will just float above that and not be submerged so they will always have backup power. So it's very impressive. They're spending a lot of money to make these reactors ready. And it looks like in the next few years, they are going to be sequentially bringing them online, which also makes the announcement. I don't know if you guys heard that the Japanese grid operator TEPCO is going to start Bitcoin mining or something along those lines to absorb surplus energy on their grid and turning on a bunch of nuclear reactors is going to have a lot of surplus generation that's going to need to be absorbed. So it's going to be interesting to see the dynamic of how they use it to kind of buffer the restart of the reactor fleet. I, th I, th I think that's part of this plan. It's going to be, it's going to be something worth watching. It's kind of wild. Like every single kind of power that's generated is effectively a steam engine. When you go down to the, you know, basic bare bones of how it works, it's kind of insane that effectively we've just created new ways to create heat. We haven't really created a new way to create energy mm. since we've invented it. It's still a steam engine effectively. It's kind of nuts. Just so happens that nuclear is the most efficient steam engine of all. Um, while we're on this, this risks of nuclear topic, we may be deep diving on this a little bit early, but it's, it is one of my priorities in this episode. One thing that comes to mind for me is, is someone that's naive to nuclear. I understand that a lot of this stuff is completely overblown. Like, for example, one stat I pulled out in preparation for this episode was that if you add up Chernobyl, Fukushima, and, and even throw Three Mile in there, the combined loss of life from that pales in comparison to the amount of loss of life that happens from, say, coal energy production in a given year. And that's nuclear technology from back in the 60s and 70s. So we've come a long way. It's kind of like airplanes in the sense that the incidents are dramatized in a way that sticks in your brain, but the actual numbers tell a different story. Having said that, nuclear energy, nuclear weaponry, anything with nuclear in front of it is a big fucking deal. And it needs to be handled uh, safely and appropriately and probably slowly. So I drew this parallel in my head between the way Bitcoiners think through Bitcoin we think through Bitcoin on like a centuries long timeline. We want that base layer to be ironclad, totally secure. The same thing would be true of nuclear. This doesn't need to work for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. This needs to work in a war zone in 80 years. Do you see viable risks to reactors in extremely precarious environments like that, where things are going completely south and haywire? Or are these things constructed so well in the 2020s that they can literally withstand any of these, we'll call them black swan events? Yeah, from what I understand, like the 
they are very well shielded in concrete. Like you would need some pretty heavy ordinances to bust through uh, a core and to do any disruption from the outside. Like, I'm not saying that it's not impossible, but it would have to be done with like extreme intention that that is what you're doing. You would choose a specific ordinance to be busting through that level of shielding. Like from, from what I understand, like the, yeah. that reactor in Ukraine, like it did take a few stray missiles in, in like support buildings, but nothing was actually damaged in and around the actual reactor housing. So that's, that is reassuring that that is uh, kind of holding the line. Yeah, the nuclear power industry, we pay the utmost respect for the, the, what this technology is and how dangerous it can be when it does get out of hand. Like the, re the accidents ha are definitely sensationalized, but there is, there are risks, there, there are hazards associated with dealing with radiological material and generating a lot of power through the process of fission. But a lot of the uh, new reactor types have have implemented new safety protocols that uh, will enable them to, if if uh, they say they lose outside power, outside cooling, they will fail into a passive state rather than needing like some something act like active cooling constantly keeping the rods cool. The the new types of fuel will automatically dissipate the heat into the environment, and then they will cool down like on their own. Um, we've got waste taken care of like for the most part like we know how to do it it's 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 a technically solved issue but it's just a matter of building the facilities that we need to like uh, I think Finland's going ahead ahead with one it's basically the the plan is to build like well managed long-term retrievable storage sites so that we can bury them somewhere that's going to be safe for centuries millennia but will also have the ability to retrieve this stuff if it is needed in the future because a lot of nuclear fuel these days only uses a small fragment of the available energy in the in the uranium fuel rods so there is a likelihood that future technology and maybe not so distant future technology will be available to extract more of the available energy out of those fuel rods and prolong our ability to generate nuclear power well into the future like there's already some reactors that can reprocess like the spent byproducts that come out of the traditional reactors like the, i think the french and and the the russians have have reactors that have those capabilities that can use like like the the plutonium and the the transuranics that are like basically all the other elements that are down around uranium in the periodic table they can burn those out in the friction process and then what that does is it decays them faster so that ultimately when you get gets as much of the extractable energy out of them a lot of the the most harmful nucleides have been expired and they there is less of a harmful footprint of the the final fuel product just to store in the end most of it will just be reduced down to uh inert salts so that waste is just much much cleaner on reactors that are exist today and are going to probably exist right. more in the future they're able to basically the byproducts are much cleaner yeah that's cool where exactly are we storing this these nuclear rods after they're used for the first few years they get stored in a uh, in a in a pool in the rod base that are adjacent to the reactors they'll be in like a peripheral building somewhere near near the original reactor that it was loaded into uh, they stay there for a few years where the, while the most harmful uh, nucleides burn off. 
and then after you know, I think somewhere around like six seven years they'll they'll pull them out and they'll put them into like a dry storage cast which is basically just like a six meter tall lead drum that's just stored on site and monitored it's got so much shielding on it that you could stand right beside it with the the most precise uh nuclear like uh material detectors and you won't even see a dose rate but but you can still like feel they still radiate heat through the sides so it's pretty cool I know this is going to be very different for each reactor because they're different sizes and use different amounts of fuel. But if you, I guess what I'm looking for is some idea of how how many of these fuel rods do you think they're having to dispose of on a yearly basis? Like how much material has to get stored somewhere? And then um, I guess to compare it to maybe green energy, like uh, windmills and stuff, there's a ton of like those fan blades that they use for those. I know that those are non-recyclable. They have to go in a landfill. They take up a ton of room. People haven't really figured out a way to repurpose them yet. So if we're talking about nuclear versus solar and wind, for example, both of those technologies have a lifespan where they are junked. Now they have to be disposed of. There's a lot of rare earth materials in those that are going to get wasted. Maybe they can get repurposed to some degree, but probably not 100%. So if we're going to compare apples to apples for, say, green energy like solar and wind, how much more efficient is nuclear as far as that's concerned? Just for pure storage and, and safety. The the number that I hear, well, like the analogy that I hear the most often is that we could we could fit the entirety of the world's nuclear waste byproducts in like two soccer fields, three telephone poles high is roughly the the volume of wow like the high high level nuclear waste that needs to be find a proper storage for, and there is expectations that that can be reduced through various like uh, recycling processes that will be available to us once we finally build the technology but that's still a good decade or so away but we are definitely working on it it's it's a lot less of a footprint like it is going to be harmful for a period of time and and, and hazardous but if stored correctly it's completely negligible like it's it's well monitored it's stored in lead secured lead casks that you wouldn't even know that there's radiological material in it unless somebody told you that it was there. We take the stuff seriously. To go back to your paper here and to start exploring the nuts and bolts of what you're working on and where you potentially see this technology headed and how Bitcoin fits in, let's start from the beginning. What is an SMR and why is it a big deal? A small modular reactor is like the newest kind of idea in the nuclear industry that we're going to build nuclear reactors that can be built in a factory assembly line type of style and that the the main components of the reactor will be easily transported in standard shipping crates and, and uh, train freight or air freight. Basically, we're going to start building nuclear reactors similar to how we build ships and airplanes, where it's just going to be, there's going to be a facility that builds a standardized form factor and then just, just, just pumps them out and they're easily and quickly deployed to uh, an end site that will be prepared in advance. The housing for the reactor will need to be built custom for wherever it's being sited. But one of the things that, that I find of interest is, is that depending on the communities that we deploy these to, like you could build the outbuildings you know uniquely in a way that they're they, they follow like local cultural aesthetics and then inside the guts of the reactor mm. would 
be the exact same as other every other reactor of that design so we could actually kind of kind of make it fit in more with the community community aesthetics depending on where they are because we we intend to deploy a lot of these to like remote northern communities which in canada are mostly indigenous so and each one has a very like unique cultural and heritage so that they they wouldn't want this just big mechanical system dropped on them if, if we could build it in a nice way that that fits with their with their cultural uh aesthetics yes <laughs> i keep using that, that word but it, i like it and then so yeah so the smrs they're going to be coming in multiple sizes it's it's any reactor that's less than 300 megawatts so there's 70 different designs being proposed right now globally um the majority of them are just smaller versions of the existing like boiled water and pressured water reactors that most of the traditional fleet is made up of um but a vast amount of them are new cooling types and some of them yeah new new fuel designs and styles um that will be able to be tested that have not really had the opportunity to be commercialized like a lot of the technology that we're going to be deploying in the next like five to ten years has already been proven in various like laboratory and research settings like back in the 60s and 70s but the industry basically settled on one design to try and make it as economic as possible and just re rebuild that same similar style of reactor as many times as possible to improve on the overall economics of, of building a fleet of reactors that's kind of how france did it japan did it canada did it the u.s is kind of unique because like almost every one of your reactors has something unique about it they're not all quite the exact same the plan is to just standardize about six seven eight of these smr designs anywhere from five megawatts for the the mini versions up to like a 300 megawatt grid scale and they'll uh, apply to a much wider range of, of applications for for where they can be deployed like traditionally like when you're building a nuclear reactor you have to kind of go for the scale and build like a gigawatt worth of capacity but then if you're going to do that you have to build it somewhere where you're going to have that demand like a large large city or a huge industrial load but if you want to bring nuclear power to remote communities you need to kind of do it in like little modules of like five or ten or maybe 50 megawatts depending on the communities that we're looking at so it's it gives a lot more optionality for how we can deploy nuclear power beyond just our our large grid scale operations when we're talking megawatts here to quantify energy how many megawatts would a typical on-grid nuclear reactor in existence today churn out so you said these smrs are going to do five to three hundred basically what would, what would a typical one in existence do right now do you know uh the ones that were just uh put made operational in the in dubai are i think they're like 1.2 gigawatts each the the can do reactors that we have here in canada each one is about seven eight hundred megawatts and then like they, they get built like like our our reactor housings are like there's eight reactors in one giant building so so that's like 800 times eight so these puts out like yeah right. like four or five gigawatts of, of power and that's basically what serves services toronto and the surrounding area are these smaller uh, reactors more autonomous than traditional ones i mean i'm assuming there must have to be some workforce there 24 7 to make sure nothing's going awry um but how technologically advanced are we talking about here and is there a foreseeable future in your mind where there could potentially be one of these smaller setups that could be just remotely um maintained and won't have to have personnel on site 
that is the end game. Yeah, there, there's an expectation that they will need to be at least a small contingent of like round the clock like uh, operators and maintainers, but people to call nine one one and us show up and be like, um, yeah, just stay away from it. Stay far away. We do we do walkthroughs, Ryan, at uh, high risk buildings in town. Josh, can you imagine just walking in? All right, boys. So here's the reactor. Um, <laughs> if this thing's open, just get out of here. I suppose. When you walk in the building and you taste metal, you know it's you know you're done. That doesn't sound like a safe environment. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, that's that's key, Josh. That's a good question because they they can't if they're a small rural, you know, five megawatt reactor. There's no way that you can have a, a bunch of scientists sitting around staring at screens and buttons. Like it's going to have to be pretty operational for boneheads like us. Is that I'm assuming that's obviously built into the plan and doable. Yeah, that's the expectation that there will there will definitely be somebody that needs to be competently trained on. On, on safety measures and what to do if things go wrong in the improbable case that they do. But for the most part, yeah, these remotely deployed reactors will be operated by a central command center that will be overseeing most of their operations. And then they will need some personnel just available to oversee it, but not fully involved in, in operating the reactor, like a traditional Operate, operating room in a in a reactor has like a dozen people in it that are constantly monitoring everything mm-hmm. ev- all the time. That'll be yeah, that'll be monitored by somebody far away. They'll call in like a technician that'll just come in and and just prepare like a valve or what have you that needs to little basic preventative maintenance type of stuff. Do you see this as the future of let's say we do end up going primarily nuclear? Say we go that w- route primarily in the future. Can you foresee these small reactors being the primary source for the majority of the world? They definitely are going to end up at every corner of the globe. I'm certain of that. It's going to take a few decades, but that process is going to start probably early 30s. I would say like we're hoping to have them demonstrated by the late, at least a few demonstrated by the late 20s. And then once we've gotten a proven a few applications, then yeah, all bets are off and we're just going to start pumping out these reactors as fast as we can. And as long as there are customers that are willing to purchase them, it's it's just going to get better and more efficient and the learning curve will, will improve and, and they'll be able to build them for, for cheaper. And then they'll, as they learn, they'll be able to improve efficiencies and it'll just that, that whole process of just learn, learn by doing. And as each sequential reactor will be better than everyone that came before it because they'll they'll learn what they need to from the last one i'm of the mind like what they could do is is if these companies that are building these reactors because they would need to kind of finance their operations they could for themselves just build one of their own reactors build a mining data center right beside it and then just let that run and then just take those profits and then just keep keep that self-fulfilling profits just pumping into the process of building a new reactor and then deploying it and building a new reactor and deploying it. And it'll be interesting to see the different strategies that these companies that are building reactors or the operators that ultimately like deploy them and own them at the end, because there's an infinite way that this can be configured and go about doing it. Because now that we just, we have a completely independent market from whatever is going on in your local area. I think it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be a lot of a lot of game theory and testing out ideas but 
it's going to change power markets as we know them. Hmm. Uh, let's pull on that string. Maybe even Bitcoin aside, before we get too deep into Bitcoin, why is this such a good form of energy production? You, you're saying you think it could be dispersed all over the world, be a primary form of energy production in, say, the mid-21st century. Why is it so effective and efficient and so likely to proliferate, in your view? Can you can you just kind of explain that from, from first principles for, for people that don't understand the efficiencies of nuclear? Well, it's more just power in general. Like, the three primary characteristics that we want from a power generation nowadays is that it's reliable, it's affordable, and it's low emissions. And nuclear, it's definitely reliable. It's definitely got low emissions. Affordability is, is questionable at the moment. We're hoping that, that the SMRs can drive down costs. And once we get more practice at, at licensing new reactor types and get over a lot of the regulatory and licensing hurdles, that we can drop the costs of building a nuclear reactor quite a bit. But like, it really depends on what your uh, priorities are for your electricity systems. Like for as long as most of us remember, right, reliability has been the priority. Like you want to be able to turn the lights on when you hit the light switch. You don't want to have a, a lingering question mark as to whether or not the, the lights are going to come on. Like, would you rather have like dirt cheap electricity that, that sometimes you might even get paid for, but sometimes it's just not going to be there or pay a moderate cost for your energy but know that 100% of the time it's going to be available for you. And if it does go out, there's an army of technicians out there making sure that it comes back on as fast as possible. So it's so nuclear, it's top of the, the stack for reliability and top of the stack for emissions because like building a nuclear reactor is primarily, primarily steel and concrete and then your fuel, whereas the other types have a lot of different material requirements that... I'm sure many, many are aware of that it goes beyond uh, the material capacity for what our planet could, could uh, give us if we intended to go 100% renewables and batteries. Like that's, there's, there's a lot of material that those, those yeah. require that uh, I don't know if we have enough, <laughs> but we've got a lot of steel and concrete. That's exactly where I was going with the next question I was going to ask you, which is basically in contrast to the amount of uh, environmental impact you get from nuclear. You uh, you have to obviously dig up uranium, plutonium, 234, 238, whichever it is. But so I'm, I'm on Twitter the other day and just randomly run across um, this gentleman's tweet. His name is John Lee Pettymore. And he had this entire tweet storm about the environmental impacts of green energy. And there's a couple of highlights I took out of this that I wanted to mention while we're talking about this. Because green energy, <laughs> uh, at the final uh, you know, point, when you have a battery in a car or you have a battery on your wall in your house, it seems very green. You're not seeing any emissions from that, obviously. But to mine this stuff, to mine some of these rare earths, uh, it takes 200 cubic meters of water for every ton of rare earth that they have to dig up. And the, all of this water they use, they have to use you know, highly toxic acids in order to refine the materials that they need out of the earth and all of that water gets put back into the watershed or quite a considerable amount especially in the third world and some of these numbers are astounding it takes 18,740 pounds of purified rock to produce 2.2 pounds of vanadium um, a couple other of these rare earths are just insane numbers here this this other one i've never heard of takes 2.6 million pounds of ore to get 2.2 pounds of it and these places are just being strip mined in Africa and Asia. And a lot of times it's done by slave labor, you know, with pickaxes 
and absolutely no protection for themselves. It's kind of insane, the greenification that we see on the receiving end of this stuff, but it is entirely a different atmosphere when at the point of impact where this stuff's being dug out of the ground. Yeah, I I do appreciate, Josh, where you just went there because it's worth zooming out and establishing that there's a couple disparate realities. One reality is that we have 8 billion people that demand an enormous amount of energy. The other reality is that we have an increasing number of people that want low carbon emissions. I'm not someone that can speak on the validity of that. One thing I was thinking through here, and I, and I was sifting through a piece and it just talking about three quarters of the world's energy usage is, is from hydrocarbons and all the en- other energy sources are either mined or constructed with equipment that runs on hydrocarbons, right? Yeah, so definitely. if we're going to provide energy and electrify the world for this many homo sapiens in a carbon-free manner or a carbon-reduced manner, we are going to need a fuck ton of energy production, of clean energy production. Yep. And with where we're at currently, it seems very unlikely that's going to be soaked up completely by wind turbines and solar. Um, and, and I think that really cues the case for nuclear and where you're going here, Ryan, is like, what else is there that's going to that's gonna fill this gap? If people want clean energy, they're going to have to take on the minor risks of nuclear because it is a very clean, incredibly efficient manner to pump out the energy needs of our species. And now with SMR technology, it's got the ability to be dispersed in all kinds of regions, both on and off grid at all different scales. I mean, truly reading your piece really cued me into, holy crap, this isn't maybe happening. This is very likely the direction this is going. Yeah, that's the game plan. Maybe we should take this time to dovetail this into how Bitcoin is going to affect this. Like, um, do you do you view this as the like, I mean, this is kind of the way I'm viewing this after reading your piece and after, you know, obviously done a ton of research on how Bitcoin works and operates in mining specifically. It seems likely the an easy path for these to proliferate would be mining companies acquiring them, you know, the say the 300 uh, megawatt version, and then just putting in a giant tract of Bitcoin miners and then also feeding the grid. It can go either direction. The If the grid isn't buying up their energy for the right price, they buy Bitcoin and vice versa. So these are on-demand users of energy and they can be turned off and on instantly. Is that how you see this maybe bootstrapping itself to reality in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, absolutely. It just it gives them the optionality to choose two completely independent markets to sell their electricity to. I, I expect you guys are familiar with Brandon Quittum's, uh the pioneer species idea. It's essentially that, like we can drop a power plant wherever we want and we have the built-in customer to take up that capacity and reduce the demand risk in the early years as more sophisticated energy users will enter that ecosystem and then eventually they would crowd out the miners and then because of how easily the miners can travel across the world, as we saw when they all got booted out of China, as soon as they're not wanted somewhere, they go find a nicer home and they will. And it'll play out like, um, was it Nick Carter's idea with the, the topographical map where it'll just, it'll just settle into all the cracks and just find all those little wasted energy sources, whether, whether they're stranded geographically, whether they're stranded temporally, like it's just going to find all of those, those little inefficiencies in the energy system like i I expect most power generators will definitely have a non-zero amount of mining somewhere on their books whether they're partnered with uh, an existing miner that knows what they're doing 
or they take the plunge and do it for themselves or they just build the infrastructure and, and do hosting or what have you. There's any number of ways that they can do it. And then from there, you could also have, yeah, you could have it anywhere from zero to a hundred percent. Like you, you could have these crazy pioneer Bitcoin miners that are just like, we're just buying a nuclear reactor. We bought some land. We're going to set it up. We're just going to put miners on it and we're just going to build our citadel around this. And like, I, I would not be surprised if there's some, someone out there, like some dude, like friggin' like Chad Everett or Gideon Powell, like these, these cowboys that are out there mining in oil fields, like they would, they would love to just get a power source that they can just drop wherever they want and just build around it. Like it would be awesome. Like the guys at Riot, they'll, they've proven that we can build these massive mining data centers that would, they, that operation that they've got going on is, is quite impressive. And then they're, they're also pretty slick with their uh, promotional videos. I was just watching one before we went live. So very, very impressed with their operations that they've, uh, they seem to be doing quite well through this uh, bear market as opposed to some others that uh, got a little over their skis. But it's just, there's so many different business models that can be tried out. Like yeah, it's anywhere from zero to a hundred, play around with it. You can try different ancillary services, whether they're playing as demand response or they just sit there as just collecting that beautiful Bitcoin for you. Or who knows, someday Jason Lowry's thesis plays out and now then we have like a national security imperative that we just mine as much as you can. We've got this incentive to just plug all of the nuclear power into Bitcoin mining and just build more of it just for mining, just so that we can compete with our adversarial nations that are also doing the same thing and, and start getting crazy with this. Like we're building something amazing here and, and it's beautiful how it, it forces what would be competitive adversarial forces are essentially collaborating to build a more secure system. So the, the more competition there is, just the stronger it gets and the better it gets for the rest of us that just use this thing, especially for the billions of people that are still unbanked. Like this just skips all of the traditional fiat finance systems and they can, they can get on with, uh, they, they will definitely have a head start on us, especially from what I'm seeing with like adoption and, yeah, Africa, El Salvador, it's the education is is ramping up pretty quick and their their next generations are going to basically be Bitcoin native while the rest of us are still arguing whether it's a it's an asset that should have capital gains or not. Well, they're going to be just using it cuz that's the only thing that they know. Yeah, they're going to leapfrog the entire financial system as we know it today. It looks like that's a that's a legitimate possibility for a, for a lot of parts of the world that are largely unbanked. Um, to double back, I want to talk about why Bitcoin is such a unique buyer of energy. Um, and to do that, let's start with what demand risk is. That's a word you threw out here a couple minutes ago. What is demand risk for an energy utility or an energy producer? And then how does Bitcoin mitigate that? And why is it such a unique and unprecedented buyer of energy. Yeah. So demand risk is essentially when you're intending to build a power asset somewhere and you have an uncertainty that you're going to have sufficient customers to take up that load. Um, a there actually, there's a good story that Harry Sudik tells about a community that was going to build a hospital. So preemptively before they built the hospital, they upgraded their energy infrastructure and added, uh, I think it was like 20 megawatts or something to a tra transmission station. 
And then the financing on the hospital fell through and it never got built, but then the community was still on the hook for the power infrastructure upgrades. So I guess Harry came in there with grid, filled that space, and now the community is paying much lower power rates and it's, it's enabled the, them to have just this upgraded system that's more reliable and use that guaranteed customer to make sure that they're, they're still getting profits off of, off of the, that uh, excess capacity. And uh, yeah, so then demand response to feature an ancillary service that power grids use where they can pay a customer that's using electricity to turn off when that electricity is needed by a higher priority customer. Like typically like um, for the Bitcoin, another Bitcoin example is we, we saw in December that during the storm in um, in Texas, the Bitcoin miners shut down as much as like 1.5 gigawatts of capacity to free up to allow the grid to just distribute it to however it needed. So it's it's just the the ability to kind of go up or down so so that you could you could absorb surplus or you can go down to when your local demand exceeds what uh, your typical base load would be. And the reason that Bitcoin miners are the best at that is just they they have a few really good properties like they're they're completely location agnostic you can build them anywhere from a few kilowatts to gigawatts as we've been seeing um they can easily be uh modulated up and down to follow loads on the demand side rather than trying to follow loads on the generation side which saves a lot of wear and tear on your gener generators you don't have any like feedstock or physical product so there's no like storage or transportation so like that that it just makes it easier to play like the you're you're condensing this energy into a product that you can then sell into a market 24 7 instantly as soon as you've of you've obtained it it's it's like the perfect arbitrage for cheap energy where it is available to be then be able to use it anywhere on the world like immediately like typically they'll do that with like aluminum or or steel mills and like remote locations with that have like lots of hydro or geothermal but then like you've got storage you've got transport you've got security and there's all those extra superfluous costs that go around it whereas like bitcoin's just an entry on a digital ledger and if you've got if you got the keys you the coins i'm envisioning you at a nuclear conference getting up in front of everybody and saying all right i have discovered an energy buyer that's totally adaptable, can be located anywhere, can be put in a ton of different configurations, can consume dense amounts of energy, and has no storage. Basically, to quote from your piece, these different points. Are you guys interested? And everyone in the crowd going, hell yeah, what is it? And then you standing there and going, Bitcoin. And everybody kind of looking at you with a blank stare, but that's, that's true right now as a buyer of energy in the marketplace this thing exists and it checks every single one of these boxes for utilities and energy producers that many of them are selling are, are paying to get rid of their energy like one thing that comes to mind anytime we talk about the energy implications of this thing is that incentives and money speak either this is gonna work and is working in many areas or it's not and if it works it's gonna happen right because if you're over here in one part of Canada and your counterpart, your competitors over here in this other part, and their bottom line is massively increasing because they're doing this thing that is moving the needle on their bottom line, you are going to do that thing. 
so long as Bitcoin does anything remotely close to what we're expecting, even if mining isn't lucrative for a lot of current entities that are targeting that specifically, for a lot of these energy producers that have to pay to get rid of their energy or have to gate down and lose a lot of efficiencies, this is a dream come true. I think it's also good for Bitcoin that some places are banning Bitcoin mining because then it gives us a control group to compare against where it is working and we can actually have a really, really distinct separation and, and really see what, what, what happens when you do embrace it and what happens when you don't embrace it. Yeah. Dan, and as you kind of enumerated there, I don't think the bottom line of a lot of these companies is very thick. You know what I mean? Like they're operating on very thin margins and anything that moves the needle on that is going to be incorporated. It has to be effectively, especially when you're watching a competitor do it. The game theory there will play itself out, as you said, as long as it works. And it clearly works. I mean, we have we're looking at hash rates right now near all time highs. I haven't checked it in the last week, but I've, I'm assuming it's still near there. And the price is in the toilet effectively compared to where it was a year ago. And people are still doing it. So I, there's got to be a lot of power transmission companies out there on board with this because there's not a lot of people that can afford to lose money on a daily basis. Like none of us could run. Uh, I don't know what you guys pay for power up in Canada, but for Dan and I, where we are, there's no way we could run anything profitably right now. Almost nothing. Yeah, that sucks. You guys in Chicago too. You guys have a few nuclear reactors there. You should have lots of power. But uh, yeah, we, we do the time of time of use pricing in, in Ontario where it tries to to promote energy use during like late at night where and then they'll make it cheaper and then less energy during the day when it's when it's more expensive. But from what I understand in Ontario being a regulated grid, the generators, they get paid a set fee no matter what from like the provincial regulators. So any time that the price of electricity that they're generating goes below that threshold, that difference is actually made up by the taxpayer. So ultimately, if we can shore up the bottom lines of these reactors in regulated grids, you're benefiting, benefiting the taxpayer and the ratepayer sometimes more than the generator itself. But then you're also like, it's it's a win-win-win for everybody all around. Like generator gets more efficient operation, it, all the taxpayers and ratepayers get to pay less. It's It, it looks like it's working. <laughs> now here's gaming out one kind of risk scenario. And I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but tell me if you've you've thought this through. Just like Bitcoin price, hash rate is a very relative thing. The definition of high and low on hash rate is going to be a, a needle that moves tremendously likely through our lifetime. So what may seem high right now will at one point in the future seem minuscule. So here's my question. Let's say there are a lot of SMR energy utilities and countries and jurisdictions that decide to adopt this. And this is kind of becomes the go-to means for bootstrapping and, and handling the significant capital outlay in the beginning to get some return to do this Bitcoin mining. And we get to a point in the future where hash rate is just orders of magnitude beyond where it is today, where the returns on this opportunity dwindle significantly because so many people have entered the market to do it and what the investors or the taxpayers or the jurisdiction is expecting on a return diminishes significantly to where it doesn't really match their expectations for how profitable it's going to be. Does that make sense? Is that a concern of yours? I know that's a long way down and that would be great for Bitcoin. That means that Bitcoin's insanely secure and there's a ton of people mining it if reactors can't be profitable or, or use it. But 
Is that something that's crossed your mind at all is a, a way that this could kind of drift off in the future? It certainly has the potential that that like that the, the diminishing like profit curves would happen as if, if you're not keeping up with increasing hash rate that just that's the way it works. And that's one of the reasons I expect that some of the most resilient miners going into the future are ones that adapt to doing um, providing like a lot of ancillary services. So it'll be beyond just mining Bitcoin for the sake of mining Bitcoin. It'll be it'll it'll be providing those demand response services. It'll be finding some way to make use of the heat whether you're you're doing some sort of district heating operation or just just have have them installed as space heaters in people's homes for god's sakes like i've got i've got an s9 plugged into my dryer like because I, I blew a heating element so i had an s9 around so i just ducted it into my dryer seems to work great and then i have another one that just used as a space heater you just turn the fans down they're not as they're just a light hum no worse than the standard space heater that you'd buy off the shelf at uh, your local hardware store. So it's, and you get the little bonus of mining Bitcoin. And like, I'm definitely mining at a loss, but I'm expecting the Bitcoin that I'm mining now to be worth a lot more in the future. Cause as we all know, there's fixed supply and we're all going to be fighting over those uh, last Satoshis as they come trickling out of the, uh, of the block subsidies. It's going to be um, actually one thing that, there, there was one chat group that I was in and this idea came up of like leaving a future to incentivize mining in the future because there was the worry about the, the potential like block subsidy going down and depending on fees, the idea of time locking a transaction into a specific future block with like say 10,000 sats now, but like 50 years, 10,000 sats might be worth a lot more than like a few bucks and essentially leaves like a treasure hunt for the the miners would coalesce like if knowing that that block is time locked with a really high fee sometime in the future that that would be a, a really valuable block f to to process at that at that point when we get to it so i there's all kinds of crazy fun ideas going on in this this ecosystem right now with with how we can make sure that mining remains profitable into the future and and yeah, who knows, like we might have like nation, nation states getting antagonistic towards each other and trying to censor each other's transactions so that, that some, some miners won't process these blocks, but then the other two thirds of the network will, will process it fine. Like who knows if stuff like that comes about, but like, it's not unexpected if it does when the nations start playing this game. Mm. Yeah. Um, being in the, the industry you're in you've kind of got a better feel for how this is going than the average person does. I recently was reading about how there was some breakthroughs in fusion uh, reactors. How close to that being a usable generator of power are we? Is that maybe within our lifetimes? Or do you think that from what you hear in the industry, that fusion reactors are just still a fugazi, still a dream that we might not achieve within the next century or so? It's really hard to tell as a layperson reading these things about how they're making incremental improvements in that technology, not having any idea how close or how far that really might be. Yeah, optimistically, probably a few decades before we can we see fusion in any com commercial capacity. Like the the breakthrough is is monumental for like a laboratory and research setting, but it still has a long way to go before it reaches commercial applications. And also, my hope is that, that Bitcoin can absorb some of that. Uh, excess generation and help them with their uh, profitability early on um 
pessimistically, like, yeah, it could still be as much as a century away before we can properly harness fusion because there's a lot of specialty material requirements handling like that level of, of heat and magnetic fields that are required to contain a fusion reaction. Just as a layperson, why is fusion so much more? Why is that the holy grail that is sought after in the industry? Why is it so much better than a fission or a reactor? Because it's you're smashing together two very readily available molecules. Like it's it's just you're hit hydrogen and you're pushing hydrogen together. You'd be using a, a unique uh, isotope of hydrogen. Tritium is the primary fuel for uh, fusion reaction. It's it's hydrogen with two neutrons, and and that's the primary fuel for fusion. So that gets smashed together with another hydrogen molecule, and then that's creates uh like if it, they get fused together with enough energy they will form a helium atom and then in that process is just explodes an enormous amount of energy out of it like that's essentially the process that's happening inside of stars but just the problem is it's so much heat and energy that it we we struggle to reach the material requirements to contain it in in a long-term durable way like it a lot of it uses a magnetic field to keep it in place because it will get so hot that most most of the metal that has been tried to contain it will it'll start to, to melt and deform because we're we still have a lot of long long ways to go. So yeah, straight you, up wizardry. Yeah, you need you need mag, like very powerful magnets to hold this together and keep it from uh, spreading out. It's it's not crazy stuff like um uh, was it the Spider Man two with Doc Ock? He was he was using tritium to do fusion, but it's it's not not quite like that. But it's the general idea is you're smushing really small molecules together and they release an enormous amount of energy. Whereas with fission, you're taking large, heavy, unstable molecules and then you break them apart by giving just like a little bit more extra energy. Then they split apart and release a lot more energy. And then the trick of a reactor is to maintain that the stability of that chain reaction so that it, it doesn't either collapse down to not emitting energy or emit so much energy that it runs away and you have a catastrophic situation like Chernobyl. Um, you had a story from El Salvador that you <laughs> wanted to share with us. What, what was that? Yeah, I got to, uh, I got to experience the El Salvadoran uh, hospital system, which was a very unique experience. So I was after the first day of the adopting Bitcoin conference, I had, I had just, uh, watched the, it was yeah it was a documentary it was the dare to dream documentary and it was it was starring a bunch of bitcoiners that we know like uh, uh valis was in it uh, mike peterson and some of the other guys from the the bitcoin beach project and while watching it valis was right in front of my my wife and i so then when the movie was over we we chatted and shook hands and then like less than 10 minutes later we're we're on our way out we're heading to the car out in the parking lot and um my wife hands me the parking ticket and I look down for a moment and then being tall I have a tendency to bump my head on things and there was a beam just right at the perfect height took it right in the center of my head and I'm used to hitting my head on things so I just kind of shrugged it off and walked to the car and then get to the driver's side and see my reflection in the window and my face is just dripping blood and then I look up at my wife and she's like holy shit what <laughs> what the hell just happened to you and then there's some two security <laughs> guards over behind us and they're like oh hospital hospital <laughs> like they didn't speak english so there was 
there was that challenge just be like yes we, we know hospital where is the hospital we don't know where we're going we've never been in san salvador before and she runs in to go grab some ice and she just like dumps out her swag bag and fills it with ice and she's like hold this on your head and just wait for me and then she, hindsight we should have like called somebody that we know that was there and that knows the, the area like someone like like Harrison martinez that we had been uh chatting with a little, little bit like he probably would have helped us out but uh no it was too late we were in the car we were on our way we were going to the hospital find the hospital it's the wrong hospital and then the security guard comes out and he's like no you can't go here this isn't for tourists this is like the, the national hospital it's the special one so he sends us to this other hospital at the other side of the city and then we get there and the hospital is completely surrounded by walls barbed wires around it like just about every other structure in el salvador and um yeah so we just park on this shady looking street there's like a few like little uh little sh little shanty shops al along the way uh, towards the entrance to the hospital the triage is just a, a fold out table right outside after we we get let in through the gate <laughs> yeah and then uh, my wife goes in she she goes and does the paperwork and like we, we couldn't communicate what happens but i just like just like show them my head and they're like oh yeah oh yeah yeah we, we need to deal with that so they they go in they they find somebody that speaks english that was that was very handy that they had a few doctors that uh, we could communicate with but i get sat down in the waiting room while i'm waiting for all the paperwork to, and uh, registration to be done I look over, I'm sitting beside this bald guy that's covered in tattoos, and I'm just like, oh. And I look a little closer, he's wearing full full manacles, and then I look a little further back, there's this, there's like an army guy, locked and loaded, sitting beside him, just being like, ready, ready in case this, this guy acts up, and I'm just like, well, at least you're here, I'm just, this is an interesting situation that I'm not into every day. And then look over to my right, like the rest of the waiting room is, just all families so I, but i'm i'm sitting beside this definite gang member like what a shit show did they uh suture you up nice and tight there's no scars oh, yeah. no it was perfect then even when i came back to canada they were like oh they did an amazing job with that that was that was great and like we were in and out in under an hour like they brought us in they sutured up the head they took a quick x-ray to make sure that i didn't do anything bad to the skull uh gave me some antibiotics and sent us on our way in under an hour like if that had been in, yeah, I hate to rag on my own country, but if that was in Canada, that would have been minimum three, four hour wait before you're even seen. And then who knows how long the rest of the process would have taken. And then you would have had to go to an external pharmacy that probably wouldn't have been open to go get the medication. And that would have been an interesting difference between the, the two systems. So I, like, I don't know if I was getting special treatment because you're just the tourist gringo in the, coming into the El Salvadoran hospital. And they're just like get this guy through as quick as possible it was a hell of an adventure and then we get back to our hotel because we weren't even staying in san salvador we were down near the coast in el tunco so we had still had like a half hour drive to get home winding roads down like basically down the side of a friggin volcano because like i'm used to ontario all of our major roads here are just just straight lines just trees and rock cuts just we don't go around the landscape we just go right through it whereas yeah el salvador was meandering around all of the curves so it's it was a it was a wild ride coming back home with a head injury still a little delirious from losing a lot of blood and my wife's just like why do you think this is funny it's like because we get to tell everybody i went to a hospital at el salvador <laughs> and she, yeah she's she still keeps she's bragging on me just like stop laughing about it
they got you in and out because they knew you were a Bitcoiner. It was like that. That's how they work in there down there. They go TNA's Bitcoin, and if you say yes, they go rapido, <laughs> rapido. This guy's gonna be loaded one day. Get him in and out. We got to attract more of these gringos down here now. For sure. <laughs> uh, what a crazy story though. It is not not fun getting injured overseas. It's not fun getting injured anywhere, but completely out of your comfort zone. Uh, glad it was a good experience. Yeah. Glad you're okay. And um, was was that in the middle of the conference? Were you able to finish out the conference okay? Oh yeah, that was after day one, and then came back day two, did my presentation, and then day three was at uh, Bitcoin Beach, and then day four was just a vacation day where I yeah walked the beach again, took some surf lessons, took in did did the tourist stuff as much as with as much energy as we had. Would have been nice to go and like hike the volcanoes or waterfalls, but man. I'm starting to, in my late 30s, I'm starting to feel old. I haven't been taking good care of myself. We'll get there. It's inspiration to to get myself back into shape that I can go and do those things. Yeah, you got to eat meat. It was a lot of fun nonetheless. And I highly recommend if you guys get the opportunity, if you get the opportunity, go. Go to El Salvador. It's on my bucket list. And you already know you're going to get to use your Bitcoin. I used it at Walmart. I used it, used it just by coconuts from just the random street vendor that's on the way to the beach exciting it's giddy when you get to use your bitcoin in the real world mm-hmm. brian we appreciate you joining us today give a handoff here to our audience yeah it was great chatting with you guys it's an honor to be on your podcast you guys have had some pretty heavy hitters that uh, come in this room uh on twitter i go by nuclear bitcoiner i'm basically out there cheerleading for the idea of mining bitcoin with nuclear power in the real world i'm just a pleb that works in the nuclear industry that's trying to uh trying to influence some scientists that are doing modeling work let's just say i'm just trying to give them an, an extra variable to incorporate into their models to to see what uh what they'll spit out and then ultimately i'd like to run a few simple scenarios and then culminate that with some something a little more substantial like um i was talking when the last podcast i did was with daniel prince and he put the idea in my head of uh, getting nuclear for Madeira, and then it was like a nice an island with a controlled system that's isolated is a really good, good modeling scenario to uh, to build up to. It would be interesting to see what uh, what sort of scenarios we can develop for for a system like that, and then that can be replicated for a lot of other places. If you build a reactor at uh, Canadian nuclear laboratories. And like, you know, three years afterward, everyone's going to be like, why is that? Why is everybody driving an Aston Martin DB9 or a Bentley? Like, what the fuck's going on over there? <laughs> and you're like, don't worry about it. That, that humming over there, pay no attention. You know, the incentives will rule. I think that is uh, one of my takeaways from your piece. It, 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 as I said earlier, if Bitcoin does anything remotely close to what we're anticipating, it's going to be something that a lot of energy utilities and especially those in nuclear are going to want to want to plug in next to the the honeypot yeah the incentives the incentives change a lot i'm like i'm excited for it and yeah i think four four years four years is when we're expecting to have our first smr built at canadian nuclear labs that is that is the goal and my goal is to make sure that we have at least a small contingent of miners to just prove the claims that are being made but i'm sure by then we'll have all kinds of examples of of this in operation so i'll have lots of inspiration to draw upon yeah, keep us in the loop and keep us updated about what's going on with that. We're uh, very interested. Yeah, sell us some hash rate under the table too. Once you get it running. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we would we would take a small nuclear reactor and you know 
powerhouses with it too if you can get yeah. us one of those ship it ship cool. it here to the suburbs of chicago no big deal right shipping that over country line well do well the, no the, the one that we're building is is an american design i think i think they're actually building one at the university of illinois i think cool. that's where one of the demonstrations is going to be built it'll probably be a year or two after the one that we get but but they're yeah they're sparking up the same tree as us there's going to be a lot of these things popping up all over the place at, at like universities and existing nuclear sites. So it's going to be an exciting new future for nuclear. And if we can uh, attach the, the Bitcoin rocket ship to it, it's going to be amplified immensely and to help a lot of people get out of energy poverty because that is ultimately the end goal is to reduce poverty by bringing as much energy to people as possible. That's my goal. Great mission. We appreciate you, Ryan. Absolutely. It's great. Great being here with you. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're appreciating our content here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by taking a minute to leave us a review on Apple, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or liking and subscribing on your app of choice. Josh and myself, Dan, are also active on Twitter, at Blue underscore Collar BTC, where we regularly post about Bitcoin, economics, food, and all sorts of other bullshit. If you want to send us questions or comments, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, we take our partnerships on this show extremely seriously. We believe in these companies and their utility. Information, promo codes, and links to all our sponsors can be found down in the show notes. Take care, folks. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.